This is Authorised Access, a podcast from Microsoft Australia and New Zealand about the cybersecurity challenges facing businesses today. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity from Microsoft and beyond as we explore high-level strategies to help confront risk in your organisation. We are living today in a multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment world. It is more critical than ever that we keep our business safe. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. Before we get into today's topic, let's talk about what has been keeping us interested this week in the world of cyber. For me, it's been diving into some new features and updates in some of our security products. And when I say new, I really mean anything released in the last few months, as we keep adding more and more to our feature sets, and I always find it hard to keep up. Some new functionality announced recently for Microsoft Sentinel is around our automation rules. Previously, these playbooks could be automated only by attaching them to analytic rules on an individual basis. With the alert trigger for automation rules, a single automation rule can apply to any number of analytic rules, enabling you to centrally manage the running of playbooks for alerts, as well as those for incidents. I absolutely love this, and I know that there are a number of my own customers who will be really keen to get this implemented. Next up for me is around the governance of our security recommendations inside Microsoft Defender for Cloud. This now gives our customers the ability to assign security recommendations to the owners of those resources and require them to give a remediation schedule. This then gives the security teams transparency into the progress of these remediation activities and gives them that full visibility to chase if the tasks are overdue. I know a few security teams that are going to love this feature. Operations teams, not so much. I've also been looking at some of the security news that's been happening out in the wild, and I am again reminded that it's often the simplest things that cause organizations to become victims of cyber attacks. Well, for me, I'll be going on an adventure into the world of identity, because what's really excited me is our vision for the future in this space. Before getting into all the tech, I sat down and spoke with some of our global team about why the Entra brand was created. So Entra is our new product family that covers all of Microsoft's identity and access capabilities. The Entra product family includes Microsoft Azure Active Directory, or Azure AD as we call it. And now it actually includes two new product categories, Cloud Infrastructure and Entitlement Management, Keem, aka Entra Permissions Management. The other is Decentralized Identity, branded Entra Verified ID. We're moving past the world of just looking at human identity, and instead of having a fragmented approach, Entra was created. I'm not going to spend much time on this today, but stay tuned next week for more details. And what's going on in Kenny's world this week? Thank you, Dan. Look, I'm going to talk about Purview. It's an exciting new category of products and services that's just been introduced, in fact, just a couple of months ago. And it actually brings together information protection, data governance, cyber risk management, compliance, and a whole raft of associated services in one category in one suite of products. So it's called Microsoft Purview. And essentially, it basically brings together everything that we had in Microsoft 365 compliance and in Azure Purview as one integrated suite. I just wanted to take a few moments just to give you a sneak peek of what are some of the changes, some of the capabilities that have actually been introduced in Microsoft Purview. First up, the Azure Purview portal is now renamed to Purview Governance. So when you actually go into the portal, you'll actually see that change. It's now called the Purview Governance Portal. What used to be the Microsoft 365 Compliance Center at compliance.microsoft.com is now called the Purview Compliance Portal. So once again, you'll actually see that change. 
Then we've actually had a few changes at a product level in the naming of products. So, for example, what used to be called information governance and records management before is now called Purview Data Lifecycle Management and Records Management. So just a few changes there. And then you actually have specific products and services which have actually not changed their names at all. So, for example, you have insider risk management, you have information protection. You can just put the word Purview in front of them, right? So those products and services are still essentially the same. They're just basically under that Purview category of products. And then you have some of the Azure Purview services, for example, Data Map and Data Catalog. They are once again under this banner of Purview. So to summarize, Purview is the new category. It's the new set of products and services that brings together all the information protection, information governance, cyber risk management, and compliance services together in one integrated suite. And that's it from me. Let's get into the conversation. Today, we're chatting with Anne Johnson. Anne is the Corporate Vice President of Microsoft, and she has her own excellent podcast called Afternoon Cyber Tea. It is our privilege to have Anne on this show, especially given her super-packed schedule. Anne has incredible experience in cybersecurity. She has a lot of invaluable insights to share. In this episode, you'll hear Anne's thoughts on integrated multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment cybersecurity, cyber risk management, and emerging areas in cybersecurity. And with that, let's dive in. We'd love to welcome Anne to our podcast. Anne, thank you so much for coming along today. Thank you so much for having me, Jess. I'm really looking forward to it. Our very first question, we would love to hear your perspective on integrated cybersecurity and privacy. What is it? Why should organizations care? And why now specifically? So I see we're uh, starting off with a softball (laughs) or an easy question. But seriously, for years, there's been tension, right, between compliance and privacy organizations, the chief security officer and the folks responsible for security controls. Because when you look at the role of privacy and compliance, they're really driven by regulatory issues. They're there to keep the organization safe. They're there to make risk decisions. They're there to make sure that truly that whether it's a local or a global regulator, they are compliant. But they also have, from a privacy standpoint, a mission of making sure all of their customers and their employee data stay safe. So there's this very mission-driven purpose for the privacy officers and organizations. From a security standpoint, they also want all of those things, but they come at it differently. They come at it typically in the past from technical controls. They're trying to enforce where data lives and where data goes and who can see the data and who can have access to the data and who can move the data. So this natural marriage or alignment of privacy plus cybersecurity into an integrated focus is that there will be meaningful dialogue and it will be deliberate and intentional between the privacy folks and organizations and the chief security officer and the IT organization saying, look, here are the regulations we need to comply with. Here's the right thing we want to do for our customers and for our employees and for our partners. And here are the controls we need to put in place. All of that can't sit alone. It's like a three-legged stool. You can't build the controls that you need from a data or security standpoint that are out of alignment with both the regulatory requirements and the mission of your privacy and compliance organization. So bringing them together, as we have done in the unified Microsoft 365 platform with security and privacy and compliance and even management, by the way, all in one place, talking to each other in an integrated solution really is the best scenario for customers to be successful, both in their security program, but also in their regulatory program and in this mission to keep their data safe. And that's perfect because that's something that we've seen quite a lot of. We've noticed that here at Microsoft, we've been doing a lot of work on 
multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment cybersecurity and privacy. So why this strategic shift? Because we recognized pretty quickly, and I'm going to parse that out into two answers. We recognized early on, right, that there was all this natural synergy and alignment between privacy, compliance, and security. And those organizations needed to be talking together and building joint solutions to enable the business and to protect it and keep it secure and compliant. So we knew that tension existed and we knew we had a meaningful opportunity as the platform of choice with Microsoft 365, where people are running a large percentage of their productivity solutions globally, and there's a tremendous amount of data being created daily. We knew we had a unique opportunity to really bring together security, compliance and privacy into one solution and make it easy for customers. But the second part of that question then goes, well, what if it's not Microsoft data? What if it's a different cloud? What if it's on-premises? What if it's someplace else? We also recognize that as much as we would want customers to run everything on our solutions, they're not going to do that. The majority of our customers are telling us they're going to have two or three hyperscaler cloud environments and then all of these other purpose-built environments, right, for doing SaaS and other solutions. So we wanted to make sure that in our goal to simplify our solutions and to really enable the defenders to be successful, that our solutions will also scale outside the Microsoft platform. So if your data is stored differently, or if you're running on a different hyperscaler, or you're running a different SaaS solution, you can still take advantage of the same Microsoft solutions that you're going to use inside the Microsoft estate. The folks that are running these solutions don't have to learn new dashboards, they don't have to learn new toolings, they don't have to learn new APIs, they don't have to learn new logging. It's all a unified solution, whether you're on the Microsoft estate or whether you're on a third-party estate. And we've been really ambitiously investing and growing our solutions to cover all of those hybrid-type scenarios and multi-cloud scenarios. Thank you, Anne. That makes a lot of sense. So when we think about this integrated cybersecurity and privacy approach, is Microsoft entirely using this strategy, this integrated strategy, for example, in the Microsoft SOC and beyond? And if yes, we would just love to hear any highlights you might have or the lessons that Microsoft has actually learned in implementing and executing this integrated strategy at Microsoft at scale. Kenny, I'll talk about it in two dimensions, right? There's a very, very strong relationship between Julie Brill, who's our chief privacy officer, and Brett Arsenault, who's our chief security officer. They meet regularly to understand the requirements and the objectives that Julie and her organization have. And what the compliance folks at Microsoft told me, that there's about 250 new requirements daily that come out in global scale from a regulatory standpoint that they have to actually decide if we have to be compliant with. Think about that at scale, right? So they have a very strong partnership with Brett Arsenault and his team to understand what controls can be put in place and what controls can be put in place very quickly to make sure we are compliant, to make sure that we have the right privacy, that we're meeting GDPR and CCPA and all the different privacy regulations on a global basis. So that integration and that relationship is really strong and it really has to do with the compliance and privacy folks driving requirements almost into the security folks and the security folks coming back and saying, okay, here's solutions for what you're trying to do. And it's incredibly enabling and collaborative. It's not the security folks giving them a list of stuff that says you must comply with this in order to meet our requirements. It's driven more by the business saying, help us be successful and the security folks leaning in to do that. The second place it shows up is in our security operations center. So we have what we call the Cyber Defense Operations Center, which is an integrated SOC. And the Cyber Defense Operations Center is not just staffed by the internal Microsoft security folks. It's staffed by everyone who has responsibility for keeping one of our clouds secure. So there's this joint unified model of staffing where we get the benefit of having, again, the line of business directly integrated with the security team to make sure we're keeping all of our platforms secure, as well as keeping Microsoft internally secure 
as well as keeping us compliant. So the SOC or the CDOC, as we call it, as a fusion center, operates at scale. It operates 24 by 7 globally, and it operates as a unified function across all of these groups. And we built it, let's say, five years. That's directionally correct. I won't remember exactly. Announced the CDOC about five years ago. And it's been a learning journey, but it's been a really positive learning journey because we've learned that we need to continue bringing more folks into alignment and other groups into the SOC so that we can actually have a tightly aligned end security experience from both Microsoft internally and also the platforms we secure. That sounds like pure poetry. Thank you so much for describing it this way. So look, we also wanted to understand when we think about zero trust, how does zero trust fit in with this integrated cybersecurity and privacy approach? How do we actually think about that at Microsoft, right? Because zero trust is really top of mind for the industry right now. And we've been talking thus far about an integrated cybersecurity and privacy strategy. So how do they fit in together? We were very early adopters to what people are now calling zero trust, right? If you think about the way we have built our security solutions for our internal employees, and I'll give you some examples. First, we rolled out multi-factor authentication to all of our employees several years ago, and it became non-optional to use it. Second, we rolled out passwordless, and we're probably close to 95% complete of rolling out passwordless to all the organization, but that, again, has been a multi-year journey. Both of those things, by the way, are key building blocks of actually developing a zero-trust environment. The other things, interrogating every transaction that happens within the session We have a lot of tools in-house for machine learning, and we've solidified all that on our Microsoft Sentinel cloud-native SIM platform. So we use that as our large brain in the sky, but we also use all the Microsoft Defender XDR solutions to help feed that, but also do hunting and detection within their platform. So we truly can interrogate every transaction that happens in a session, which is another principle of zero trust. The other thing is least privilege. We figured out pretty early that we had a lot of folks in the organization who had admin rights on their endpoints, and the majority of them don't need it. I mean, I'll take myself. I'm your average user. I get up and I use the Microsoft applications that Microsoft serves me. I do a couple things on the internet, but I'm not downloading any you know, major applications. So there's no reason as an end user, I needed admin rights on my Microsoft laptop. Another core principle of zero trust is that least privilege principle. So in order for an organization to actually have an integrated security solution and an integrated privacy and compliance solution, then you take things like employees working at home or working from any environment, Kenny, and you think about the fact that they may be on a shared kiosk or they may be sharing their device with their child who's doing schoolwork or their spouse or their partner who's working on the same device, but maybe working different hours or, you know, there's a lot of shared device scenarios and zero trust really, really accelerated during the pandemic because so many people went from home and there were no better controls actually than having a zero trust architecture in place. It also helped us stay compliant. We didn't have to trade off compliance requirements or privacy requirements because we already had the building blocks in place and we knew what we had to do for different workers councils in different parts of the world or different privacy requirements. Even down in Australia, you guys have some pretty unique and powerful privacy requirements that we have to come in compliance with. And I'm definitely going to come in because you've piqued my interest in regards to talking about zero trust and a lot of those areas of non-negotiable MFA and many organizations It's an imperative to move to that model and hopefully more and more continue on that journey to passwordless. But while we're talking about zero trust, we can't talk about identity being the new security perimeter. And for the audience that's tuning in, I'll be sharing a lot more around how we're stitching multi-cloud and multi-platforms together like permissions management. But I'm going to have a question about the future because we always love learning about what's next. So how do you foresee the future of identity and security coming together as part of this mindset with zero trust? It's such a great question. You probably saw that under our Microsoft Entra brand, which is our all-encompassing identity branding, 
we brought to generally available our cloud infrastructure and entitlements management solution, right? The cloud Knox acquisition that we did last year. That's such an important piece of having that multi-cloud footprint, by the way, because we can do entitlements not just on the Microsoft cloud estate across that platform. But how does it come together? Well, it all composes from identity, right? And identity is the new perimeter is something we've been saying for several years because it's not just about humans having an identity. And that's what people have to stop thinking about, that the identity is only Ann Johnson, the human. I have an identity. The device I'm on has an identity. The software I'm using has an identity. The data I'm accessing has an identity. The network I'm transiting on has an identity. If I have an IoT or an OT device in the mix, they have identities. All of those identities are purpose-built to do something quite specific, right, at any point in time. And that's the important thing. So if I'm logging onto my computer and I'm using, we use Windows Flow for business internally. We use multi-factor authentication like Azure Authenticator. We are very locked down from that point of view of what we use for MFA. And I always say MFA for 100% of your people, 100% of the time, anybody who accesses your environment, customer, partner, et cetera. But that aside, when I log in, I am generally considered to be healthy, right? If I'm on my Microsoft device, fully patched and updated with my Microsoft applications, I've strongly authenticated, my posture is healthy. But if I start to do something anomalous, that's where that interrogating every transaction and the identity becomes important. Let's say I start to exfiltrate a bunch of data, something I wouldn't normally do to a USB drive. That's anomalous behavior, but that's identity. That's my identity behaving in the wrong way. Or let's say I open an application that has a SQL injection, it has a macro in it, it has something bad in it. Suddenly that application is not behaving in an expected manner. So the behavior of the application is incorrect. IoT and OT devices are actually brilliant use cases because they are truly purpose-built to do one thing. And if they're starting to make calls to do something different or something looks funny, that's again anomalous behavior. All of that is identity, but it actually is tracked by your security team for anomalies. You're looking for anomalous detection. Is there malware in their environment? Is there a hijack in the environment? Is there a man in the middle attack? Whatever it is. And that's where identity and security come together because the identity should be doing something quite specific. You should have some type of role-based access control for what I can do, when I can do it, how I can do it. Same for my device, same for the app, same for the data. And then if it becomes anomalous is when the security team comes in with their controls to actually look at the anomalous behavior, decide if they need to block something, do they want me to re-authenticate? Do they want to stop that data transfer? Whatever it is. You can't have one without the other, by the way. So switching gears for a second, another theme that we hear a lot from our customers globally is effective risk management from the board of organizations all the way to the SOC of an organization. Effective risk management, cyber risk management appears to be that really top of mind item that everyone is trying to get their head around. We've actually had a maturity-based lens to cybersecurity. But increasingly, we're actually seeing a focus on cyber risk management or a risk-based approach to cybersecurity. Why this shift and why now? Well, cybersecurity has always been a risk decision. I think the mature organizations understand that. And when I say really mature, there's a maturity curve in cybersecurity of folks that were highly regulated industries that had sufficient funding and could build really mature programs. And for them, there was always a risk equation. Kenny, you could have perfect security, right? The example I use is there was a global bank that was notorious in around 2003, 2004. They super glued all their USB ports closed because they couldn't control the access. So the important thing to understand is that you could have perfect security, but you can't run a business and have perfect security. So you're always going to have to take a risk. So the question is, what risks are you willing to take? Are you willing to take a risk of going into a market that you know has more threat, right? There's more attack surface, there's more threat because you want to expand your business in that market. Are you going to take the risk of allowing 
more people within your organization to access sensitive data from a non-company issued device. All of those are risk decisions. And as an organization, you have to balance the risk decisions with compliance, by the way, and with security controls and make sure that your ultimate goal is to enable business to continue in the most secure posture and in a compliant way while meeting privacy requirements, but it's all a risk decision. And we're seeing companies more and more mature to having conversations about security with their board because it's now become a board level conversation and boards understand risk. They don't understand necessarily attack surface and detonation chambers and all of those things, but they understand risk. And those are the terms the CISOs need to be talking to the board in. Couldn't agree more with that statement, Anne, around talking about risk. And I know that when we talk about even different topics, we're always evaluating and, and giving different scenarios and example around, we were talking before just about identity, but then applying a risk-based approach within that, ensuring that how do we work more effectively? And the topic when we do talk about risk, back to a, another analogy of that three-legged stool is that people, process, and technology perspective. But how do you talk to organizations about managing their cyber risk more effectively? So it's first you have to identify it. A lot of folks don't know where their cyber risk is, and it's really hard to quantify it. People always want to ask me, how do you quantify cyber risk? I don't know that you can quantify cyber risk, right? But you can certainly understand what your top 10 risks are. Let me give you an example. We know that our data within Azure Active Directory tells us that over 90% of breaches have some type of password element involved. Whether that's brute force, whether it's a password spray, it doesn't matter, but they, it's a stolen credential. They, they receive the credential in some way. So a big risk would be you don't use multi-factor authentication for your entire organization, so you put passwords in play, or you haven't moved to password lists. It's the simplest language I can put it in, right? That's a risk for an organization. If you're not encrypting sensitive data, or if you don't even know where your sensitive data is, by the way, and we've had this proliferation of data in organizations and a lot of technical debt, so organizations will tell you, I'm not even sure I even know where all of my sensitive business data is. That's a business risk, because if you can't identify where it is, you can't secure the access to it or potentially encrypt the data that you want to have an encryption strategy for. And that's a brilliant segue into one of the other topics that we see a lot of our customers are interested in, and I know we internally are very focused on it, and that's insider risk management. And it is a key area in our cyber risk management at the moment because we know that's where a lot of our data exfiltration is coming from. So how does Microsoft manage insider risk? What are our processes that we are doing and the technology that we are using to be able to manage those risks? So Jess, this is such a great story because the insider risk management module that ships within the Microsoft 365 solution was actually originally built by our internal team. And I think the folks on the call may know this, but our audience doesn't. It was originally built because they identified that at the global scale we had and with the different populations that we serve globally of our employees and our partners and our customers, we didn't have an adequate third party off the shelf tool that we could just go buy that would meet our needs. So Brett's team built the solution. They also built all the processes and controls that went around the solution. We tested the solution internally. We tested it at global scale. We made sure, I talked about things like workers' councils. I talked about things like compliance requirements. We made sure that whatever we rolled out in a specific geography met the needs in the geography, or we didn't roll it out, right, we, until we did meet those requirements. And we tested it. We were like the beta testers at Microsoft, and then we built it in the product. And when we built in the product, then we made it, we integrated with the rest of the Microsoft 365 suite. We also made it scalable to go beyond Microsoft, right? And we built a support engine, both a customer success unit 
and within our customer support organization that understood how to support customers in their deployment of that solution. But that solution is incredibly robust because it was built for us with our 150,000 or whatever employees and contractors at global scale tested at global scale, and we iterated it over several years before we actually baked it into the solution. I'm going to take a little bit of a turn to move into the emerging areas of cybersecurity, privacy, and where Microsoft's areas of investments are over the course of the next three years of much that you can share publicly, of course. But where are the key areas of investments that we're making, as an example, like in network security or SASE and even beyond that? So I'll do short term and then I'll do what's just on my mind. And probably I should tell you, my day job, for those of you who are listening, is M&A and strategic partnerships and long-term strategy. So I'm typically thinking about what's next, not what's now. But I'll tell you a little bit about what our, we just started our FY23 fiscal year. I'll tell you a little about where we're investing right now. One, privacy. So we brought our privacy solution to market. We will continue to significantly invest to make that more robust, to build it to be a really comprehensive solution. Two, our Microsoft security experts, so our managed services solutions that within our Microsoft Defender estate, we announced those at the RSA conference a couple of months ago. You'll see, continue to see us building that out and making investments in that area. Three, threat intelligence. We built Risk IQ last summer. We closed on it last summer, and we're continuing to build out our capabilities from both a solution and a services standpoint around threat intelligence for our customers globally. The fourth area is network security. And this is such an interesting area because when I think about network security, and you have to remember I'm an old network architect from long ago, I think about it from everything from like CDNs and WAFs and DDoS attacks all the way to SASE, right? So it's like this whole huge field. So we're answering the question today of we already have within the Azure estate really good solutions for Azure, you know, WAF and Azure CDN and DDoS solutions. But we're trying to decide how far we want to go as a Microsoft delivered solution versus partner delivered solutions, because we do have a robust, we do believe security is an ecosystem. We do believe we don't have to be the only solution to everything. And then what areas should we actually bring a Microsoft solution to market? The final thing that I will tell you is we are on this just huge mission to simplify, 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 simplify how people buy our solutions, how they try our solutions, how they implement our solutions, simplify things so that you saw the Microsoft Defender for Business announcement so that the small and mid-sized business can take advantage of our solutions. So we can enable cyber defenders. It has to do with unified portals, unified logging, unified APIs. That's a large body of work, by the way, across the entirety of the solution set. Because if you think about how we composed, a lot of these solutions were built by different engineering teams that as of October of last year under Charlie Bell came under one org. They weren't in one org previously. So there's this huge body of work going on to unify the actual fabric, the fundamentals of all of our solutions so they have the same look and feel to customers and they're easier to use. That's short term. That's a lot, by the way. <laughs> so I'd say short to midterm. Yeah. Longer term, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about things like adversarial artificial intelligence. We're thinking about data poisoning attacks. We're thinking about quantum computing and quantum cryptography. We're thinking about Web3. We have a huge project going on about Web3. We're thinking about space, the security of space, you know, the final frontier. So we're thinking about, but those are some of the things that are top of mind. We're actually writing a paper that we will publish called Cybersecurity 2030. I think it's probably still a month to six weeks away, but it really has that even beyond. A lot of people are talking about 2025. I gave an initiative to my team. I said, I want you to be a little more ambitious than that. And maybe when you look that far out, maybe only 20% of it's real, but I want you to be a little more ambitious because that's going to come fast for a lot of people. So those are the things we're thinking about. And then on the theme of simplification, in cybersecurity, we actually have a lot of technical jargon, right? So 
of your threats and vulnerabilities and preventive controls or detective controls and intrusion prevention systems, and the list goes on and on and on. You talk to security leaders globally all the time. Can you recommend potential strategies that people can actually use to really simplify the conversation? This is security leaders, this is security people having conversations internally. What are some of the tips and tricks of communicating what's going on with this very rapidly evolving field of cybersecurity, cybersecurity strategies in an organization, information security governance strategies to people who might not necessarily be security people? You probably know a few years ago, and I need to revisit this, I published a blog on the topic of the jargon of cybersecurity, and I've talked about it in presentations and said, look, we need to attract new talent into cybersecurity because we have this potential three and a half million dollar job openings globally, right, in cyber in the next couple of years. So we need to be able to attract different types of people who want a career in this. And they get nervous and turned off when we talk about detonation chambers and sandboxes and attack surface. And, you know, we use this kind of militaristic language because a lot of the folks that started in cybersecurity came out of militaries globally, by the way, or intelligence communities. That's kind of was the origin of the industry. So we need to get more simple in how we describe things, less militaristic, less gender-based in how we describe things. And we also need to turn off this hiring bias that we've had that says you must be a computer science graduate with five to 10 years in forensics before we even consider you for an entry-level job. So we need to actually be able to say, you know what? And I use myself as an example. So I started a company called RSA Security in the year 2000 as a PKI specialist. By the way, I didn't know what PKI was when I started there, just so you know. I used a RSA hardware token. I thought I went and researched the technology. I thought it was super fascinating. I applied for the job of the company. Okay. So fast forward 22 years, I would never have been hired today into that company to do that job because I was coming out of the storage industry. I did storage and networks before I ever did security. Infrastructure is a great place to go into security from, by the way, because I understand how things work and it helps secure them. But anyway, but I also don't have a technical degree. I finished university with a dual major in political science and communication and a minor in history. Okay, so I mean, I have no, like no technical degree whatsoever. So I look at myself and say, would I be employed in any of these cyber jobs? Say the answer is no. And I look at other folks that are coming out with liberal arts degrees or social science degrees that we need in the industry, because if you think about just training machine learning models, if everybody thinks the same, the model thinks the same. And you get this big group think in the model, and the model's not as nearly as effective, right? So for pragmatic reasons, we have to have people that think differently. We need people with different socioeconomic backgrounds, different demographic backgrounds, different degrees. We need different genders, different race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's this broad envelope that we need. In order to attract those people, we have to stop talking in these opaque, jargony terms that only us as our little club understands. And I get into it myself, too. If I'm talking to a security peer, it's hard to get me out of that jargony stuff because I've been doing it for so many years, right? So it's like any other communication. They tell you communication is all about the receiver. So understanding your audience, like I talked about CISOs talking to the board in terms of risk, right? That's understanding your audience and messaging your comps to them. If I'm talking to Jess or if I'm talking to any of you, I may talk in cybersecurity speak, right? Because I can. But if I'm going to talk to my family, and this is the best example I can give you, they get tired of me, by the way. For example, I won't allow any listening devices in the house. And we're a pretty low-tech household. And I brag about how we're a low-tech household because I don't think you need to attach your toaster to the internet. But what I did learn from them is you have to explain these things to them in simpler terms, right? Telling them no, because, you know, we'll get malware and that'll be da, 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 and then the toaster won't work. And they're just looking at me like you're crazy, lady. You know, you're just out of your mind, right? <laughs> and you're paranoid. Security people are naturally a little paranoid. And so I've learned that I have to communicate in a different manner to folks that are just not in the industry. And the whole industry has learned that. So what are we doing? 
there's a lot we're doing. I'm trying to think of specific programs in Australia. And unfortunately, I'm probably not as literate enough to tell you what we're doing in Australia. But there's programs we've spun up with like the US government to recruit retiring or transitioning military personnel. By the way, Former military folks make brilliant cyber folks because they know how to work on a team. They know how to work under stress. There's a lot of stuff they know that we can teach them technical skills if they didn't come out of the military with a technical MOS or a technical background. We're doing recruiting at HBCUs, so historically black colleges and universities in the U.S. We have an autism program. We're doing a lot of work with WESIS, which is the Women in Cybersecurity Program. We're doing a lot of work with girls' security. So we're doing a lot of work. And then the big initiative that Brad Smith's team rolled out globally was community colleges or junior colleges. You'll have to tell me what the right term for that is in your market. But is it community or junior college, like the two-year school? Or do you have that concept? I would probably say that is our technical colleges. So something like TAFE here in Australia or New Zealand. Okay. So we have this whole network of community colleges or two-year colleges that people will go to either that's where they'll go completely or before they transfer to a university, right? I did that. I left high school at a very young age. So I went to a two-year college before I went to university because my parents viewed that I was, even though I was out of high school, I was too young to really go to a big university, right? But a lot of the folks that go to community colleges or junior colleges in the United States are either lower income or they're returning students career changers, those type of things. So we've rolled out a program in the U.S. and now globally, we've expanded to many countries to do cyber, to give grants, to give skills, to give training. Microsoft has done that to try to bring more people into cybersecurity, fill that talent gap, to give them the education they need and to get them started on the careers. There's a whole lot we can do, but a lot of it does start with we have to talk about cybersecurity differently. We really do need a lot more diversity of perspective, of thought, of backgrounds in the cybersecurity sector, as you actually described. So just drawing on your experience in uh, political science, Anne, that you just mentioned that you were just alluding to, and cybersecurity. Look, one of the most significant threats that we've actually seen surface over the last couple of years is disinformation, a threat to democracy, a threat to the rule of law. What are we actually doing or how are we thinking about disinformation at Microsoft? And what are some of the things that we're actually doing right now and that we're actually planning into the future to really counter disinformation? Because it can cause a lot of damage, as we all understand. Yeah. So Brad Smith's organization, our corporate external and legal affairs organization, has had a defending democracy team for several years. And it is known that the intersection between disinformation and cybersecurity is an intersection, right? The same actors who are launching cyber attacks are often the same actors who are using disinformation. Maybe it's deflection, maybe it's deception, maybe it's to influence an election, maybe it's to seal trade secrets, whatever it is, right? Or, or cyber espionage. So Microsoft has a defending democracy program. We continue to staff that program. We also just closed an acquisition that went, was a little quiet, but we did publicize it called Moburo, which is a company that actually focuses heavily on disinformation. And that was a talent acquisition more than a tech acquisition. So we are continuing to actually invest in this area. We recognize that if you read any global study, it will tell you that democracy is declining on a global basis. And we feel we have a responsibility as a big tech company who has a lot of information, right? And, you know, an internet presence and everything else, we feel we have a responsibility to participate in that conversation. And we're making significant investments and we'll continue to do that out of our corporate and external legal affairs organization. Finally, one of the questions that we have is around emerging areas of cybersecurity and privacy. And you've already spoken a little bit about that in terms of those investments that Microsoft is having over the next couple of years. And I'm really excited by the idea of space. So in terms of what organizations can do 
to improve their security and privacy going forward in those newer frontiers, what can they do to get ready now? What can they be doing at this moment to prepare for that? It's such a good question. And you're probably looking for me to like give you a super visionary, you know, this is the future answer and I'm not going to. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to tell you. I built this team called Dart. Now has moved into Kelly Bissell's organization, but I built this team called Dart a long time ago at Microsoft. And that's Microsoft Detection and Response Team, which does customer incident response. And every quarter, Dart would come back with a report that said, here's the top five reasons customers were breached or an incident turned into a breach or a compromise. And the top five reasons almost never changed. And the top five reasons were lack of multi-factor authentication, too much privilege, shared domain passwords. You wouldn't believe how many shared domain passwords we still share, right? Exceptions, lack of an encryption policy. I would tell every organization, and people also want to talk to me about supply chain. How do we protect against supply chain attacks? Your job is to keep your organization secure. You should assume your supply chain is compromised. You should assume you're compromised. And we need to get better about doing the cyber hygiene stuff. And I don't think orgs don't want to do it. They just have decades of technical debt. They have competing priorities. They have new solutions coming to market. And going back and revisiting some of this stuff is really hard. But there's two places any org should start, Jess. One is rolling out MFA. I'll never stop saying that. And two is in their server farm. Servers, 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 folks, those domain admins, HR admins, they have an awful lot of rights and privileges. You may not realize it, but they need to be secure. If you're going to roll out MFA, start there, but you also need to check the rest of the security posture. You need to do things like we do, use secure admin workstations so they don't do their admin work on the regular computer, those type of things. I don't think there's anything that folks need to do right now to prepare for space, for example, unless they're directly in that industry. Then there's a whole supply chain conversation and physical security conversation that goes with cyber conversation. I do think the last thing customers need to do is be really cyber resilient. And I've written about this and blogged about it and talked about it a lot, which is plan for a cyber event the same way you did for any other disaster that's going to impact your business operations. Make sure you have a technical plan, a communication plan, a legal plan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera in place, because you're going to have a cyber event. It's not if, it's when. And the question is, how quickly can you overcome it and get back to normal business? And I just can't resist the temptation and metaverse security. Yeah, so we're writing a paper on that. I challenged a member of my team. She's been working on the cyber insurance initiative for a while. She said, I want a new challenge. I said, go write something on Web3. Write on Web3 security. I didn't give her any boundaries. Blockchain, I don't care what it is. Just go write on Web3. So here's the interesting thing about metaverse security is I worry most about deep fakes, synthetic media. Disinformation was bad enough, and we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on controlling disinformation. I don't know if you saw, there was this really sophisticated deep fake from what was purportedly the Chechen president and the Ukrainian president, and the Ukrainian president was surrendering, that was around last week. This is not a good place to be. We're in a bad place. We're in the bad place. So when you're thinking about the metaverse and you're thinking about all of the different implications of really opening up even further, which we need to do, we need to grow the digital state, we need to grow the digital global audience. But I worry about all the implications and particularly those things related to synthetic media and deep fakes, marrying that with disinformation and cyber espionage, and we're in a pretty bad place. Thank you very much for that. I have to admit, I've only dipped my toes into the metaverse a little bit, mainly for entertainment. A topic that is very close to your heart and to ours and to mine in particular is encouraging greater representation, that diversity, people of different gender, race, ability, backgrounds to have a career in cybersecurity. 
and something that we do get asked a lot as cybersecurity folk, what impact does that have when we are building a modern SOC? Why do we want that diversity? What makes that diversity so important? First, I'm going to be really pragmatic. We're not going to fill all the job openings we have unless we have a more diverse audience to fill them. So that's the pragmatic answer. From a SOC standpoint, I talked a little bit about groupthink. We know studies have shown us that diverse thoughts solve hard problems faster. So a SOC trying to solve a hard problem, if you bring in 10 people with the exact same engineering and educational background, they, not one of them is looking at the problem differently. You need to bring in people with different backgrounds so they can look at the problems differently and help you get to a faster and better outcome. I think it's incredibly important that we really break out of this, as I mentioned it, you know, the some of the job requirements. There was one I saw recently, someone posted on Twitter, Jess, you'll appreciate this, where somebody wanted, I think they were asking for 10 to 12 years of Kubernetes experience. And the Kubernetes people were like, um, it hasn't even been around for 10 or 12 years. So, you know, just these ridiculous. So one of the first things companies can do, and I do it, is I look at every JD. I look at every job description that goes out there. And I say, are we casting a wide enough net that we're going to get a diverse population applying? Or the requirements such that we're going to narrow ourselves to 10% of the population are going to see this. That's actually the first thing you have to do. The second thing you have to do is you have to be incredibly proactive. I call people. People are like, well, how do you recruit this person, that person? I said, I called them. I personally called them and I kept calling them and I became persistent in a pleasant way, but I was persistent, right? But then when you bring those folks in, they bring in their network too. That's what I've learned. You bring folks in, they feel they have a comfortable place they can work, they can be successful, have high impact and grow the career. They're going to bring in their audience, which is people, again, that are like them. So it's incredibly important that our socks be built with diverse folks because, and when I say diverse, that's that broad envelope of education, gender, race, religion, et cetera, because they're going to look at problems differently. And having a bunch of people look at a problem differently means you're going to get the best outcome for the problem. And speaking about diverse thoughts, and we we're talking about it throughout the session when you were talking about background and community college, or as we call it, TAFE, and where people come from, those different areas. But we all love listening to your podcast, and it's a bit of a cross-promotion around Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, but you have lots of different conversations with amazing people around the world. What's coming up next and with your own podcast and people that we could listen to in the future? We're working on a really good lineup. We just ended season five. So Afternoon Cyber Tea is every other Tuesday or every other U.S. Tuesday. Uh, it's every other, well, it'd be middle of the night for you or early Wednesday morning. We have Mahal Braverman Blumenstick, who's Microsoft's own security chief technical officer. Mahal will be joining us. We have Dave DeWalt and Jay Leak, who are known cyber investors. They're going to talk about the state of the cyber investment landscape, which is very different than it was six months ago. It's in a very, very different place. We have Ira Winkler has agreed to do the podcast and he's going to talk about the security of metaverse. So that'll be one that's because it's Ira and because of the topic, that'll be absolutely worth people joining. And we have MK Palmore, who's spinning up this effort with some peers. I don't know if you know MK, but he is with an organization called Cyversity, which is all about diversity for underrepresented people in the U.S., particularly the Black and Latino population. And MK is going to come on and talk about that initiative and what he's doing. And I think that just gives you a preview. We ended the season, by the way, and communications folks always joke about Afternoon Cyber Tea. They're like, what audience do you want to serve? And I'm like, I just love these diverse conversations. We'll get known industry people on. We will try to bring an up and coming person on. We've had professors on. One of my favorite topics was the Internet of Bodies. We had a Georgetown researcher on talking about, you know, all the embedded devices we put in our bodies, right? It was a fascinating conversation. But we also ended the season with a non-tech person. 
Jeff Rivera, who was the senior vice president of media at Ebony Magazine in the U.S., and he's gone on to start some diversity initiatives in his own media company, came on and talked about his journey because he was homeless as a child. And he came out of a life of poverty with a single mother. And he talked about his journey then to being this executive at Ebony Magazine and then starting his own media company and starting his own gender initiatives. So I try to go across a lot of spectrums. We've had Ian Coldwater's been on to talk about Kubernetes security. We've had Katie Nichols from Red Canary has been on to talk about threat research. We try to have like this really broad array of people on. But the main thing about Afternoon Cyber Tea is there's two things about the podcast. One, we really do try to make it a podcast that anyone can listen to. We try to get as little cyber speak in the podcast as we can, except when we're going to have like an Ian Coldwater on. Then people know this is going to be Kubernetes security focused, right? And that they'll tune in for that. The second thing is at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to give anybody listening two pieces of advice for what they should do now. What should you do now? By the way, speaking of disinformation, we had Dr. Fiona Hill was on the podcast last fall. That was also a fascinating podcast. So we mix it up, but we also have a lot of fun. It's a very low-key, friendly podcast, no gotchas. And I'd say instead of afternoon cyber tea, for most of us, it's morning tea. When we're listening to it, as you said, it's a great listen and quite easy to consume the content, but helps with conversations. And hopefully we've left the audience today with more than two bits of advice, but really excited and highly encourage anyone tuning in and listening to afternoon cyber tea along with our podcast, of course. But for us today, that's unfortunately enough time that we've got allocated. So thank you so much, Anne, for taking the time out to speak with us. We really appreciated it. Thank you for the invite and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much, Anne. You've been listening to Authorized Access, a show about the challenges that businesses face when it comes to cybersecurity. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft ANZ. Microsoft offers a comprehensive set of end-to-end security solutions that span people, devices, apps, and data. For further information, please visit the website, aka.ms slash authorized access. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Authorized Access, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. And we'll be back next episode with more authorized access. Mm-hmm.